Uh, we're in Judges chapter 3. Okay, reading from um, verse 12. Judges 3. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Jerah, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. Um, We keep reading. Verse 24. After he had gone, the servants came and found the door of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. No one escaped. What, uh, that day Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. I will do keep uh, your Bible open to that passage, this uh, great story from Judges uh, chapter 3. Uh, and there's an outline that uh, hopefully you would have got on the way in as well that will... Uh, give a bit of a direction uh, for where we're headed. It's, it's probably a little bit of an unexpected passage maybe for Mother's Day, but it is uh, the next part of, of Judges that we're looking at. Uh, and uh, But it is it is a good story. Uh, I'll just check if I got... I do. It is a good story. Um, the, I don't, you might have even got uh, a good story for your mum or gran or something. You might have received a good story for Mother's Day. Uh, uh, but we do love a good story, don't we? 
the expression, the, the puns, the, the way that uh, things come together. Soph and I, uh, we're reading a story at the moment. We like to read uh, stories out loud to each other. It's in the My Friend Flicker series uh, called Green Grass of Wyoming, and it's a great, uh, it's a horse story. It's a great story. We're enjoying that. Um, but a good story, what it does is it, is it brings together both the expected and the unexpected. Uh, they kind of both come together and get woven together. It's not all, you know, expected. That'd just be boring. And it's not all unexpected. You kind of wouldn't know what's going on. But both of those things come together, predictable and unpredictable. Uh, and it does so in a way that you can savour what is going on, savour the expressions, savour the, the, the words that are used, um, like a, maybe a, a good, nice piece of dark chocolate or a, a nice glass of port or a strong cheese. You, you savour it. Um, the description, the light and the shade, what you're told, what you're not told. Uh, and these chapters here in Judges, uh, this historical narrative uh, that, that God in his wisdom and through human hands has, has brought together for us as he reveals himself, uh, is, this is a good story too. We can, we can be entertained as we read the scriptures in one sense. Um, last week we saw with Sean uh, that we had expectations set, uh, that God is faithful but the people are anything but. And we, we kind of saw a bit of a, a cycle there, uh, a cycle of uh, disobedience, disaster, uh, their distress and then a deliverer, deliverance that God brings. And this kind of went round and around. Uh, and through these, uh, this, these narratives here in Judges that we'll be looking at, uh, that we're looking at tonight, uh, we're going to continue to see a predictable people in one sense and a faithful yet unexpected God. God will keep his promises, but not always in the way that we'd expect. So let's uh, jump in and we'll start with Othniel. Uh, we're going to start back at uh, verse 7 uh, of chapter 3. Uh, Othniel here is quite helpful. He's actually the model model, uh, the expected pattern, uh, Othniel, a prime example of kind of setting the standard for the judges that come after him. We kind of got the general pattern back in chapter 2 and now this is kind of a specific example in Othniel. Uh, let's have a look there. Um, the Israelites, verse 7, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, uh, and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Uh, as we go through, we'll kind of notice some things here. Um, but the Baals and the Asherahs, these, these weren't just uh, any random kind of pagan deities, you know. Um, these guys, Baals and Asherahs, they're the gods of the people that the Israelites now live among. These are the gods of the Canaanites those whom have been left in the land uh, to test the Israelites. They're starting to follow them. But not only that, are they following the gods of the people around them. Um, these gods were also all about prosperity. They're about fertility, getting, you know, having your livestock reproduce and, and, and productive animals, good crops, having a good harvest. That's what these gods we're about. Common wisdom, in fact, said that if you wanted to do well in the land, then this, these were the gods that you needed to appease, you needed to submit to and honour. It was what everyone else was doing. This is what you did to ensure a good harvest. 
that year, to, to finally get ahead with the mortgage or to give your kids the best start in life or to, to take up all of the opportunities that were around you. And even as we just kind of begin here and see how the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served these other gods, it makes me think about us as we live in a society, continually offering up all kinds of different gods of prosperity, if you like. And I wonder what ones we might justify going along with, justify dabbling with, because it makes good sense to the world. But in verse 8, we're reminded again of what God thinks about idolatry, aren't we? So they, the Israelites disobey, but what do we see from God? Verse 8, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Idolatry is not neutral, is it? It's not neither here nor there, you know, just a little bit on the side is fine or, or an, it's an acceptable compromise for uh, people in a broken world. Not at all. Idolatry is rightly despised by God, just as the intentional flirting of a spouse would arouse one's anger and jealousy. Now, God's anger is not, you know, doesn't, doesn't fly off the handle, flaring up in a moment. It's not out of control like human anger, but love is certainly angry when it's spurned. It doesn't remain indifferent. And so, verse 8, Yahweh sold them into the hands of their enemies. You see, it was God who, in bringing the people into the land, had defeated their enemies before them. And so now, as they turn from Him, it's God who hands them over to their enemies in the land, who will defeat them. The cycle continues. Disobedience, disaster, and now distress. They, they cried out to the Lord in their, in their distress. And God, verse 9, raises up a deliverer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Ah, the force is strong with this one. He's got good lineage. Caleb, remember him? The guy who, even at 70, wanted to run and take down those cities of the giants. Well, Othniel's raised up by God. He's empowered by him. The Spirit of the Lord is on him to act for the deliverance of his people. In verse 10, God gives the enemy into their hands, into the hands of this judge, and the land has peace for 40 years. The cycle completed. Peace, that is, until Othniel died. Othniel, he's the model judge, the pattern of the deliverer that God would send among his people. And we're going to notice just a couple of things before we move on here. Notice in particular something about God. You notice how much God is involved all the way through here. You know, God's He's left the nations in the land to test them because of their disobedience. God's anger burns against them as they go after other gods. God gives them into the hands of their enemies. God raises up a deliverer for them and puts His Spirit on Him and delivers them. Make no mistake here, we see a downward spiral of of the aircraft, which is the people of God in Judges. But this downward spiral is by no means out of God's control, as if they've kind of stepped outside of God's sovereignty over here in disobeying. No, they're, they're well and truly in the realm of God's sovereignty. And it's not 
despite all of those things, that God is still in control, but through and through, God is sovereign. He's in control. He's in control through the oppression that his people suffer, through their distressed cries, through the, through the judge that he raises up themselves, even through their continued disobedience. God is still in control. Sometimes in our lives, it can seem like God is, is not in control. You know, maybe he's forgotten us, or maybe he's taken up with other priorities at the moment. Have you ever felt like that, like that God has left you to go it alone this time or in this situation? Don't be sucked in, don't be, be believe the lies of the devil which lead us to think that God is not good, that God doesn't care, that he can't act or he won't. Remember the God of the book of Judges, who is in control through and through, faithful in both distress and deliverance. But notice also, as we go into this next episode, to to see just how unexpected that deliverance can be. Let's continue with uh, verse 12. Uh, verse 12, we come to Ehud, and, and Ehud really is a, a bit of a, is a character out of left field, uh, pardon the pun. You see, verse 12, Israelites, uh, the Israelites did evil again in the eyes of the Lord, verse 12. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the things that stands out to me at this point, we're only in chapter 3, and already we're seeing Again, again, they've sinned. Again, they've done evil in the lives of the Lord. Again, you think, oh, geez, it's just going to all happen again. We know what to expect. But things aren't as they uh, are expected in this account. Uh, let's start with who it is that God gives power over Israel. Verse 12. Uh, because of this evil uh, the Lord, that they did, the Lord gave Eglon king of Moab power over them. Eglon king of Moab. Now, where is Moab again? Uh, if Imagine, you know, this, you've got a line kind of going up the middle. That's, that's the, the Jordan Valley, okay, in, in kind of Palestine. We've got the Mediterranean Sea over on this side, uh, deserts over here. And we've got, uh, here is the land of Canaan on this side, right? Um, where's Moab again? Well, it's not actually in the land of Canaan. It's kind of down here over on the southeast. In fact, uh, when Israel was coming up from Egypt, kind of down here, uh, they came up, they wandered around in the desert for 40 years, and then they actually come up this side of the Dead Sea in the Jordan River Valley. And they come through Moab, and they kind of wallop them kind of there a little bit as well, uh, and then keep coming up, and then they cross over... Uh, cross over the Jordan River uh, to come into the land. So these guys are kind of, they've taught them a lesson before, yet it's now Moab that God brings against Israel. It's a little em embarrassing, really. Notice in particular where they come in. Uh, do you notice that? Uh, verse, uh, where are we? Verse 13. They came and attacked Israel. Their God came and attacked Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. Now, I didn't know what the city of Palms was. I looked at my footnote. Uh, you might have that in your Bible. Uh, but that's Jericho. What was the town, the city, which was the first kind of milestone, the great milestone of Israel coming into the land and taking possession of it? It was Jericho. 
And now Moab is coming in and taking over that. Well, the story continues. Now, verse 15, the Israelites cry out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer. There's a bit of familiar uh, things, expected things uh, sewn in there. But then we go again into the unexpected. Now, let me uh, highlight a few things for you from the, the Hebrew narrative here that just uh, helps us to see what's going on a little bit more high definition. You see, um, you see, we've got Benjamin, uh, Ehud, where is he? The left-handed man, verse 15, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. Now, Benjaminites, Benjamites haven't particularly uh, had a good mention so far. They've had one mention back in chapter 1. Uh, and they were the ones who didn't drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. Well, that that's, that's, you know, doesn't sound particularly good. This guy doesn't seem like he's you know, from the line of Caleb and that. Um, but let's keep going. Um, what do we see about Ehud? Well, Ehud was of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, but as with many names in the Old Testament, Benjamin means something too. Uh, Benjamin, bin Yamin, um, bin, son of, Yamin, my right hand. Son of my right hand. This guy Ehud was from the tribe of the, the son of my right hand tribe. Uh, and that was, uh, 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 if you like, the right hand was the symbol of power and strength uh, in the ancient world. Uh, that's where this guy Ehud is from. And what else do we kind of notice about him? It actually doesn't say that he's a left-handed man uh, in the Hebrew text. What it says is he's bound or restricted as to his right hand. Can you see the, the humour, the, the irony that's going on here? Ehud, the son of Gerah, of the son of my right hand tribe who is bound in his right hand, not able to use his right hand. The humour ought not be lost on us. But the irony doesn't stop there. You see, in a right hand kind of dominated world, having a strong right hand was, you know, one of the key assets that a warrior would have had. Uh, Power, strength, dexterity. And so God has raised up a deliverer, some a, a helper, a man who is bound in his strength, bound in his right hand, maybe someone who others might look at and see needs help. We're not quite sure. It's not clear here whether there's uh, maybe a, 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 he's disabled in his hand or whether there's been an accident or something like that. Uh, but he does seem to be someone who's not really a threat militarily, um, as the story goes on. Certainly not, not someone you'd expect. And so this one, the one from the, the son of my right hand tribe, the one who's bound, restricted in his right hand, is the one who Israel chooses to then take this tribute to Eglon. It's almost as if they're expressing their submissive state before him. But there's a hidden plan in the making a secret plan that I think only Ehud knows here. He made a sword, you see, a double-edged sword, a secret sword, and he hid it in a 
in an unexpected place, on the right thigh. The right thigh unexpected because if you're a right-handed soldier, you draw your sword from the left side. Well, Ehud and the, and the carriers of this tribute take the tribute to Eglon, verse 17, who was a very fat man. It's interesting uh, here there's also a bit more humour, a bit of play on words going on because Eglon's name actually means calf, kind of little calf. And so there's a man who is described as very fat with the name of calf who's receiving a tribute probably in an agrarian society which consisted of a large amount of food as well. On the way back, though, things deviate from the expected. At the idols, Ehud sends the others on. Go on, he says, everything's okay, and he turns back. I've got a secret message, a secret word, or the Hebrew can kind of even mean a secret thing for you, O king. Yet another hidden thing. The king's intrigued. Could Ehud maybe have a message from the gods, the idols at Gilgal that he's just passed by? And so he receives Ehud in his upper room in a different place, a place that would have received the breeze. Uh, it also even had its own ensuite. Uh, Eglon meets him there alone without concern. Why would he need to have concern with this man, Ehud, restricted in his right hand? What threat could he pose? Verse 20, Ehud comes in, I have a, a word, a thing from God from you, he says. And Eglon rises from his seat to mark the, the, the solemnity of the occasion. Rises from his seat. Is that his throne or, or another throne that he maybe regularly sits on? To hear this important message. And then all the action begins. But rather than being kind of super quick, lightning fast, the narrator kind of slips into slow motion, bullet time. You know, you can hear the heartbeats. Doof, doof. He drew the sword with his left hand from his right thigh. Doof, doof. He plunged the sword into his, into the king's belly. Doof, doof. Even the handle went in with Ehud's hand on it. Doof, doof. And in verse 22, it's, most likely not the blade that came out, but as uh, Ray was reading from the new NIV translation, it's probably the dung that came out, his bowels. Doof, doof. Good thing he's sitting on the toilet. He pulled the he didn't pull the sword out, but he pulled out his hand. Doof, doof. The fat closed over the blade. Well, there goes my sword. I better get out of here. And so Ehud goes to the balcony, exits stage right, locks the internal doors before he goes and makes good his getaway. And then the servants appear, stage left. The tension continues. Is Ehud going to get found out? Is he going to be captured as they raise the alarm? No, no, no. The servants, they're too embarrassed to enter. You can just kind of see them nervously standing on the outside discussing what should we do? Should we go in? Should we wait? Uh, we, we can smell something. Maybe he's on the toilet relieving himself. But they do get the sense that not all things are okay. Finally, they come in and dun-dun-dun! Maybe it's the behold moment. The king lay, fl lay on the floor, dead. 
and they're stunned. They're stopped. They're still. Meanwhile, Ehud, Ehud, he's hightailed it out of there. He's headed for the hills. He blows a trumpet and calls not just Benjamin to him, but Israel. And I think up to this point, actually, this plan, this secret hidden thing that's been going on hasn't really been known by everyone else. But now he reveals himself as Israel's deliverer, an unlikely deliverer. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given your enemies into your hands. And off they go. They go to the Jordan River to cut off Moab's escape back over the river. And as the Moabites flee from Jericho, they are struck down, all of them, 10,000 Moab, Moabites, strong and able, struck down by the unlikely, bound in his right hand man. With, his, with the army with him. And there was peace in the land. Now we don't have time to look at the accounts of Shamgar and Deborah and Barak in the same detail, but still I encourage you, read it this week. Get into the, into the story. It's a good story. Uh, Shamgar, kind of, who is he? Reminds me, he's got an ox goad, reminds me of this guy from, oh no, I took it out. Reminds me of that guy from, from 007, the, the guy who throws the hat, you know, to get people. What, what's an ox goad, you know, a pointy stick or something? Um, Deborah, this unexpected way that God continues to rescue his people, continues. A prophetess and leader in Israel, an exceptional leader. And surprising at a time when the society was patriarchal as well. Barak, he's not Othniel, he's not kind of jumping at the chance to take down the, the city of the giants. He's a bit hesitant at first. Uh, and then exactly what happens in the battle to, to defeat this other, this other guy, Sisera, with 900 chariots? Um, how does this happen? Well, we don't kind of find out until later on in chapter 5 about an unexpected storm. Clouds dropping their water, flash flooding in a place which the river would have just been a trickle normally. And the floods come down and wipe out the chariots just at the right time, just at the right place. This unexpected deliverance continues in these stories. What are we to make of all of this? I think at one level there is some joy in just savouring the story. It's a good story. What a God we have that he's chosen to reveal himself to us in the richness of this, this kind of narrative. Get stuck into the book of Judges as we read it. Use some of the resources that Sean has mentioned. Pick up one and and don't let this treasure of God's word pass you by. We can enjoy it as we read it. But also remember what Sean said last week about those two main characters, the people of Israel and God. What do we see about them? Well, we see, again, God's people, unfaithful, undeserving, repeatedly giving in to the, the temptations of promises of bounty from the gods of the people, forsaking the Lord. And as we saw last week, things are going to go from bad to worse. But in this slippery slope of judges, I think the warning that comes to us, the word that comes to us is, is is this actually beyond us? Is it beyond me? Is it beyond you? 
if you ever think that you know you're okay with sin, I, I'm I'm good with sin. It's it's okay. I've got it sorted. We've got it under control. And maybe I'm only sort of dabbling a little bit here or there, just you know, just enough to diversify my portfolio with the idols around me. The Book of Judges ought to remind us of our true colours, or to remind us of how deep as human beings, how predictable as human beings our sinful human nature is, how deep it is. Even the deliverers that Sean mentioned that God raises up here, you know, are flawed or use questionable means. You know, Ehud and the deceptive assassin track that he took, Barak and kind of hesitant to take God at his word. So the question is, do you know, do you know how predictable you are in this area? how persistent our sinful nature can be. Whether you're someone who trusts Jesus or not, I think this is something that we must all come to see because without coming to see this, we're not going to see how awesome and amazing the faithful and unexpected deliverer God is. This exceptional God we see in these same pages. Because who do we see? We see a God who is faithful, who is in control, a God who keeps his promises, who who hates sin, but doesn't always act in predictable or expected ways. It's interesting, a pattern of, of what was to come, of how he was to deliver. Because Jesus, well, Jesus didn't come in a predictable way, did he? Isaiah talks about him having no form that we should be attracted to him. Uh, born in a backwater in Bethlehem, an animal feed trough. Grew up in, in Nazareth as a carpenter. One of the disciples in the Gospels comments, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Peter can't believe his ears. When Jesus talks about his salvation plan, I'm going to suffer and be handed over to the Gentiles and die and rise. Surely not, Lord. And Peter begins to rebuke him, as we saw in Matthew recently. Some people might say God works in mysterious ways, but I think I'd rather tweak that and say, well, God has told us what he's doing. He has revealed himself to us, but he just might do it, not do it in the way that we expect. His promises stand true, stand sure. He will never leave us or forsake us, Hebrews 13. I will be with you always to the very end of the age, Matthew 28. And if you're someone who trusts Jesus, then you can be confident that in whatever happens in your life, God never stops making you more and more like Jesus. Romans chapter 8. His promises are sure, but we just can't necessarily hold him to predictable means for how he's going to do that. I was thinking uh, with Soph earlier, oh, God is faithful yet unexpected. I'm a bit slow on the slides tonight. Um, but about Google Maps, I use Google Maps kind of looking at different routes for things. Uh, and when you kind of get those different route options, you tend to think, well, no, I'm not going to pick the 16 minutes slower option. Uh, I'll take the fast one, thank you. Um, it's the same way when it comes to navigating life as well, isn't it? Uh, you wouldn't choose the via hardship and discouragement 
route to kind of where you want to get to. But it may be that God is taking you that route. We've got to allow him to be God in his infinite wisdom and trust him, trust him and his way rather than seeking to hold to our own in what can seem like an unstable sea. God is faithful, though he will not always do things in the way that we expect. So will you trust him? Will you trust him to get you from A, from here, to B? That is, to be with him in heaven. Pray that you do. Amen.